welcome back to the Local Matters podcast, this time for episode 11, Foreign Affairs. I'm here with Charlie. Hello. And Patrick. Hello. Today we're going to talk about all things relating to foreign policy and foreign affairs, not from a party programme sort of view, but just a general localist, I suppose, more ideological point of view. So there's countless things that we can consider in this episode, such as wars and trade, foreign aid, all things like this. And we're all going to discuss a lot of them if time permits. But to start with, uh, should we talk about war for a bit? Yeah, I suppose it's the most obvious one. Uh, you can look at, um, you know, the conflicts that have been happening around the world, especially in the Middle East. And, um, you know, Western countries and specifically our own uh, tends to get involved a lot more than I think we should. Uh, much often to the detriment of not only the local people there, but additionally as well, costing the life uh, and lives of uh, our own soldiers in the process. Um, it, it really is perpetuated largely, I think, on this sort of uh, Americanization and imperialism that we, we've discussed in previous uh, episodes, uh, wherein um, people try to fit this one-size-fits-all idea of uh, democracy and, and form of government on foreign nations, uh, as well as obviously the economic advantages that um, largely America, although the West as a whole, benefit from in these, these foreign conflicts. It definitely is the most obvious. Um, I think one thing to look out for is that it's only been in more recent history, although the UK does have a colonial past, um, you know, these wars, these interventionist wars, are a more modern term. Uh, because these aren't to take over the land as such, um, or arguably they do through corporations, uh, but these are to install democracies, or uh, ultimately, you know, to install corporations or um, military bases in these places. I mean, if you look at a map of the USA's military bases internationally, it's absolutely insane. The sun never sets. Of course, it's uh, it's empire building, and I, I wouldn't even call it the installation of democracy. I'd call it the installation of political puppets. Um, you know, they don't want these people to decide, you know, between themselves, you know, what is best for them and their people. Instead, they they decide that they know better, and they'll go show all these foreign people how to do democracy properly. And I think it's it's absolutely patronising, and I think it's it's absolutely none of our business. Of course, if there's humanitarian issues, we can uh, lend. Uh, aid uh, directly or through you know uh, existing charitable organizations but we shouldn't be going and, and throwing bombs around the place or arming uh, radical uh, rebel groups either or rebel groups at all for that matter the stance is completely absurd and is is entirely predatory i think yeah and the spin they put on it is so patronizing just like you said patrick it's um it's very we know the right way to live and to form a society and to run an entire country. So uh, although we're a million miles away, here's our lesson. And if you don't like our lesson, uh, we'll we'll force it on you. The thing is, it is as you said, incredibly patronising because it's just not true and nobody believes it anymore. You just need to look at some of the regimes that were set up under the guise of establishing democracy, whether it was before the First World War in the Monroe Doctrine or in the Cold War with groups like the South Vietnamese government or you know when they overthrew the government of Allende in South America and all these sort of groups. None of these can be called democratic in the slightest. And it is really, as you said, to extend the American empire. Nobody believes it anymore, the idea about it being some kind of 
almost ideological manifest destiny. And that doesn't even make sense because some cultures don't value democracy as much as the European cultures do. Some cultures are, in my opinion, more naturally autocratic, perhaps, or communal, that kind of thing. Do you guys agree? Because I know that's a bit of a controversial point to make, perhaps, suggesting that other countries might not want democracy. Absolutely. And there are different ways to live. Uh, It's not just democracy either. I mean, for example, the economy of Ghana might not be as efficient as ours uh, in turning on money or products, but I would imagine that the average mental health uh, is far better than ours, you know, with all our people in offices, nine to five jobs and things, um, with so so many less of them doing the same. Uh, it's a different way to live, and it has advantages and disadvantages. And the same goes for uh, their political structure as well. Yeah, it's all about the metrics in which you you really sort of look at to to try and perceive what is better and what is worse. Uh, and of course, we in Western countries are going to apply those Western metrics, but we can't, you know, tell these people how to live, how to be happy, because you know, it's not even like we've achieved the perfect system ourselves. Um, it, it really is, um, I do think, a cultural difference. Uh, and I, I don't think it's a cultural... Um, I don't think it's, it's a matter for us to be getting involved in. I mean, I wouldn't appreciate it if, you know, Saudi Arabia was coming over here and, um, you know, telling us how to rule our country. It would be absurd. Uh, we want to, you know, have that autonomy for ourselves to be able to decide which, uh, which way and how we want to, to, you know, rule. Another issue that's just as patronising and is often branded in a really emotional way is that of foreign aid. In 2016, Britain spent £13.4 billion on overseas aid, and by 2021, that's predicted to rise to £14.5 billion. According to fullfact.org, for every £100 that's made in Britain, 70 pence of it goes towards foreign aid. And this is obviously a huge investment, and we have to consider what the taxpayer actually gains out of this investment. Yeah, it's very much, um, well, it's designed to be a give and take situation, isn't it? But it's very much give and much less take, similar to the EU, which benefited, uh, you know, the poorer countries like Greece. Uh, we would put out, we would put in more than we took out and they would, uh, and they would take out more than they put in. Although some people would argue the moral point, uh, ultimately it's not moral and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, these situations for countries like ours are just not beneficial. This is one of the major problems with it being a target-focused policy rather than one based on provisional demand at the time. So when you have committed to the fact that 0.7% of the GDP will be spent, when there's no major earthquakes or disasters of other forms, health crises, etc., you have to find a place to spend this money that you've already committed to foreign aid. And a lot of the times this leads to them going into some very nefarious hands into corrupt government hands, perhaps, or even non-state actors. Or sometimes even state actors that are just completely irrational as choices for foreign aid, such as India. So India perhaps has one of the worst track records, in my opinion, with the foreign aid issue, because that country has a space program, despite receiving £46 million on average per year from the UK in foreign aid. And it recently spent £95 million on a lunar probe. So you have to ask, what is the threshold of a country that needs foreign aid? Is it one that literally is trying to land machinery on the moon? And we are essentially subsidising such ambitions because, of course, the money that we provide to these countries will be used 
to address their domestic problems, which they should be spending their own money on, or even worse, funneled to a completely non-domestic issue, such as space exploration. In short, there's almost no way of confirming that foreign aid goes to aid people that require aid. And you can't argue that any country has a right to space travel, while refugees from war and food and water, things like that, are completely understandable. Space travel is not one of these things. And when a country reaches the point that it can afford this amount on its space program, then how can we justify sending them this amount of money? Some people may argue that, pragmatically, foreign aid essentially acts as soft power. So this would be spreading British influence in India in an economic and cultural way, which should bring economic benefits to this country. But ultimately, this kind of trading relationship should be that, should be trade and a two-way exchange of goods on mutual terms, not this essentially bribery that we're doing now, where we slip the country some money so that they continue to, say, supporting a British company over a German company or something like that. This is a very harmful situation for both the British taxpayer and for the residents of India. And not all countries that are you know, receiving this foreign aid um, are as black and white as India. I mean, you have these you know, third world and developing countries in uh, Africa and uh, Southeast Asia uh, where the quality of life is lacking and they're, they're not having these space programs. But uh, foreign aid is having a very different uh, but very... Uh, equally bad uh, effect. Um, there was a case in uh, Eritrea uh, where the president uh, vowed to not let his country become, quote, another spoon-fed African country. Um, you know, this this dependency that's being created on foreign aid in these uh, developing countries, just offering simple cash handouts, is not allowing their economy to properly develop. We are propping it up uh, which is causing them to have massive spikes in birth rate. And uh, it's, it's not sustainable. Uh, not only can we not afford to keep giving them money when we're having our own crises in this country, uh, but additionally, um, it, it's not allowing the economy to develop on its own when they don't need to produce these businesses and when they don't need to learn uh, to do X, Y, or Z and can rely on foreign imports um, and finance. Um it, it doesn't it doesn't allow the country to grow as it should. Uh, and this is something that not only of multiple um, African um, leaders brought up, but it's also something that's been echoed by politicians or, or very few politicians in Europe as well. But it seems that every single time uh, this issue is raised and it, it is said to be anything but positive to be throwing money around to poor people abroad, uh, it's it's seen as an entirely altruistic and positive thing when the reality is it's it's not as simple as uh, the situation seems to be. And when you have the people you're trying to help sat there saying, listen, we don't want this help. You're actively creating a dependency in our country. We don't want to be spoon-fed. I, I can't you know, help but to agree to some extent with the people who, who claim that foreign aid is, is a form of influence spreading, is a form of bribery. Um... Because why else would we, we be doing it? Well, perhaps it does benefit our country in certain ways. If, for example, say if we were donating a large amount of... Um, oh, it was a similar situation with Turkey and Greece. You know, Turkey threatened to release millions of migrants into Greece um, 
if you know if they didn't allow certain things, and the same could be said for for foreign aid. Um, you know, we could be putting foreign aid into countries like India to prevent mass immigration from India, or some you know something to that effect. And in that instance, it could come as a benefit to us. The thing is, though, that isn't happening because we are still receiving mass immigration from all corners of the world, despite a record foreign aid budget. I think it can be used in, in better ways, though, is what Charlie's trying to say. Uh, we can be spending money efficiently. Foreign aid um, in concept isn't uh, necessarily a bad idea, but in execution, uh, currently we're throwing away millions and millions of pounds uh, for nothing, essentially. Um, if we were giving out money to help relief efforts in times of crisis, or if we were you know, offering uh, aid to you know, mutual uh, cooperation schemes, uh, between different countries, that that's a brilliant way to spend a little bit of foreign aid money, uh, because it's you know actually helping people out who are in need, and you know that maybe they're they're not able to uh, have the infrastructure to properly support those people with with what they have, um, or additionally you're getting something you know back from your investment. You're not just handing out money uh, and creating the aforementioned dependency. So I think. You know, it's not a blanket, uh, you know, label to put on foreign aid that it's necessarily bad. I think it's more so the execution of foreign aid uh, in the modern modern world that's that's an issue. But I think with uh, better policy, better direction, more consideration, um, other than sort of this weird false altruism and uh, perhaps more sinister intentions in terms of expending, uh, extending foreign influence, um, foreign aid can be quite positive. That brings up the moral dilemma, though, of at which point do you stop favouring the homeless person in the actual country of the taxpayers and you start favouring the displaced people in countries that aren't the same country? Do you know what I mean? Well, like put simply, at what point can you justifiably take money away from Englishmen who need it to help non-Englishmen who need it in other countries in, for example, natural disaster situations? Much agreed. I think it should be a matter of surplus, not a matter of, um, you know, a set amount of the budget. I think if we have people struggling here, that should always be our priority because that's what the tax people are, that's what the taxpayers are paying into. Um, they're paying in, uh, you know, to receive something back in their own communities. They're not paying back uh, to have that money not only disappear out of the community, but disappear out of the country entirely. Yeah, absolutely. Our people should always come first. I think there as well, we need a stronger emphasis on private charities um rather than the public spending which is you know you don't have you don't have a choice where your taxes go but um but with private funding um you know we can still help these um these refugees in foreign countries and uh victims of hurricanes of natural disasters um through private you know through the direct choice of giving your money to them or not this is also something that is related to direct democracy, I think, or at least you could relate them if you tried. And what I mean by that is we really need a much more transparent system where taxpayers can see where their taxes go. I know you do get that on the tax returns and many other forms, but there should be a way for the average taxpayer to influence where their taxes go as well to a greater extent than there currently is. That is impossible in the current system, but on a smaller scale society, I suppose, and on a direct democratic society is something that I think would become a very major issue. Yeah, and it's not just about putting our homeless people first or those in need 
in our country first. Um, that also includes our businesses. You know, as we've talked about in the consumerism episode, we talked about in the Americanization episode. Um, you know, English producers, English vendors, uh, all these businesses need to be prioritised for imports as well. There are definitely politics involved with imports and exports to foreign countries. You can see this clearly with Trump when he speaks about it in terms of America and imports from China. And there's a lot of support for the idea. And a lot of Trump supporters come from this idea of, uh, you know, what they call America first. When they're talking in terms of businesses uh, and the economy being more being more enclosed within America rather than depending on imports and exports. And we need to do the same in England uh, and rely as much as possible on ourselves and then obviously import things that we need to import. Agreed. Yeah, it really is a matter of... Um... You know, I think we're trying to spread ourselves too thin, and when we have so many issues here, uh, it is it is quite uh, as cut and dry as, as an issue of priorities. I think we need to look uh, more internally, and I th- think additionally, when we do look externally, we need to look uh, more so to our friends in the world, other than uh, you know the cheaper products we might be able to get in China. Um, you know, Europe is somewhere that despite you know our issues with the eu we shouldn't turn our backs on uh, we should have um we should invest in massive cooperations with europe and if, if we're looking to forge relationships with countries it should be there as that's where our you know our real potential for future trading partners lie um, as well as countries obviously like new zealand and australia and canada absolutely the the european cooperation isn't just businesses either ultimately we want to see european federation that is the ideal political structure. And we've talked about this before in the regionalism episode. There's direct democracy, regionalism, uh, different states, uh, and then above those you have a layer of nations, and above those you have a European federal system. And this is the ideal structure that we propose. Very likely not in our lifetimes, of course. There's some superstructure that the world has never seen, but this is about adopting to the modern world in terms of population, foreign affairs, uh, economy. Um, it's a enormous system, and there's a lot of details that we could discuss about it. We don't have to go too in-depth in this episode because we want to talk about all foreign affairs, all foreign policy and things. Um, but yes, the uh, Euro-Siberian Federation is the ideal structure. Now, I can already sense the hair standing up on the backs of people's necks when I, when we say European Federation, because this is such a polarising issue now, especially with regards to the EU, and that's what everyone thinks about. But the kind of thing we're talking about is very different to the EU. This would not be an organisation based on liberalism, especially neoliberalism, this kind of weird bastardised blend of liberalism and Marxism, as you can see in the current European Union. Instead, this would be based on a sort of subsidiary model, which emphasises local and regional identities and local and regional autonomies while scaling up on the national and even continental scale for matters of defence, coordinated large-scale economy, whether that's necessary, foreign policy, things like that, but greatly devolved, not centralised at all. And there's so much we can talk about. I think we might as well do an episode on this in the future since it's such an interesting concept. and There's a lot of different viewpoints on it. Way too much to go into now as a sort of single issue in this broad foreign affairs episode. But should we talk about it a little bit now? Yeah, absolutely. Let's go, Patrick. Yeah, so, I mean, 
throw me into the fire there a bit, but no, I, I think this is a really, really uh, untouched sort of uh, playing field. And I mean, of course, it's going to be difficult in England to talk about issues like this right after the Brexit referendum. Uh, and I'm sure there is lots of, um, you know, raised hairs, like you said, Ethan. Um, but it, it is something we need to talk about. I mean, who are we going to cooperate with? Who are our allies in the world? Is it America and their empire building or is it, you know, our brothers in Europe? Uh, and no, I don't want to be subservient to Brussels. No, I don't want to be able to uh, not choose my my. Uh, no, I don't want to not be able to choose the direction of my own, you know, local community. Uh, you know, I don't want to be able to uh, lose uh, my my say in England. Uh, but what I do want to do is be able to cooperate with Europe as a whole on on this uh, level playing field of, you know, uh, allies and brothers and friends. Uh, cooperating together internally rather than trying to impose itself externally. Um, you know, I think it really would be um, a massive mistake if we, we turned our back on Europe. And I see with the, the changes of, you know, the developing world, it is it is a sort of natural uh, evolution. Um, and like I say, I don't think we can go into enough depth here to do it justice. I'm sure... Um, there will be plenty of questions, which, I mean, if you do have them before an episode is released, I'm sure you can message them through to the Facebook page and we'll, we'll get back to you as soon as possible. Um, but we, we do need to start looking at, uh, you know, greater models um, to, to be able to have the same degree of, you know, uh, global um, impact that we had, you know, decades ago. Um, you know, and that doesn't mean going off and colonizing Africa, but it does mean, you know, for our um, international trade or international relations, uh, we need to be uh, forming this cooperative net uh, and being able to work together, um, you know, for, for the betterment of all of our communities. Uh, you know, localism isn't just about our own community, it's about bringing communities together and allowing our own communities to cooperate with one another. It's about, you know, not only helping your own community, but allowing others to help theirs too. Uh, and doing that on a European scale, all looking after our own local small communities, our own regions, our own countries, and the continent as a whole, uh, and then obviously above that, the world as a whole, um, is, is really important. It is that sort of natural scale of things, and uh, to stand together as you know Europeans, I think is really really important in that. I'd like to just put in as well, I voted for Brexit and I still stand by that decision. And the decision for a lot of people that I know was between reform or or leave and create something new. Brexit definitely tainted the relations with Europe. Um, not only does it appear to them that you know we despise the continent, and uh, but, but also people here, uh, part of the Brexit campaign was admittedly on the fact that we are not European. We absolutely are, and the fact that any, you know the idea that anyone from Britain would state that they're not European is mental. You know, you're saying someone from one of the Danish islands is not European as well. It's crazy. So I voted Brexit because I believe that the EU is incapable of reform, and instead we need to leave and create something new over time. Because obviously we need to repair those relations first, and then we can work together. Uh, once the EU collapses, to build something better. It would be uh, an unabashed shame for us to uh, fight so hard politically to achieve this political independence that we have separate from the EU, only to give it up again. So we need to make sure that uh, we can create a an organization and, a, like I say, a network um, 
that really will allow for all of us to have our own say, our own autonomy, uh, but still allow for you know the greater cooperation um, and communication that's required in the modern world. Um, and we we need to build that up, um, not as a you know coal trade union. We need to to build it up as is what it's intended to be, rather than the you know the centralized bureaucratic and Jacobin state that the European Union has become or is becoming slowly. It might seem paradoxical for a group such as ours, which promotes regional autonomy in almost all matters of politics, to now come forwards with a model in our minds of the greatest voluntary federation of peoples that has ever been conceived in history. But these are not actually mutually exclusive concepts because there are some issues that just can't be broken down into subsidiary forms, such as defence, Because especially if the rest of the world seems to be coalescing into cultural blocks. You see that in India, in China, in Africa, and in South America, you won't be able to have a like North Yorkshire army that's going to be able to preserve Yorkshire's independence against like a predatory resurgent India or China. I'd give it a go. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, some issues just are too big, such as that, and also economy in terms of things such as nuclear power, which would have to be coordinated even above a national scale onto a supranational continental scale. And as you said, Charlie, we do have to remember that at the end of the day, we are Europeans. And when push comes to shove, I think the Europeans will run together in their ancestral family in order to defend their interests. But anyway, it really is difficult to talk about such a complex topic in you know the back end of, a, of an already uh, quite complex episode. Uh, and I do really don't want to detract from the overall point we're trying to make on foreign policy. Um, but to sort of conclude, uh, at the very least, uh, as you work to a greater network of European cooperation... Uh, you know, we do need to speak to our neighbours. We do need to look uh, to have those be our trading partners. I, I don't want to be subservient to America or China's massive economies. I, I want, you know, local small-scale economies working together on a, on a great scale. Uh, and I think that is the, the scale of economy that we need to see. We don't want to see, you know, these great monopolies forming uh, overseas and internationally. I want to see small businesses working with small businesses all across the continent. Um I think that's that's definitely something to work towards. So if this is something that interests you and you'd like to hear us talk about it some more, uh, do let us know in the comments uh, on Facebook or on Twitter um, or just message us if you have any questions. Um, but I think that's all for this episode, unless you guys have got anything else to say. Not for me. No, but I will mention on that Twitter point, we will get active on Twitter. Uh, we're all aware that it's been lacking, but we will get on there. And Instagram. Yep, that too. Hey, come on, outro us, outro no. <laughs> The outro is not going to be the same without you. <laughs> Can you pre-record some for us, please? Uh, uh, just copy and paste yeah. my favorite episodes. <laughs> and in that case, that's all for this episode. Be sure to check us out on social media, such as Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at localmatterseng, or visit our website, thelocalist.org. Be sure to check out our new e-shop at thelocalist.org forward slash shop. And if you're feeling particularly generous, consider giving us a donation at paypal.me forward slash local matters. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 Bye.